This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. At Jared, we know devotion isn't a once a year occasion. And once the flowers have wilted and the chocolates have disappeared, you'll still want them to know how much you care. Dare to give a gift that lasts this Valentine's Day with our incredible selection of jewelry. From delicate rose gold to bold black diamonds, Jared has hundreds of pieces under $299 and exclusive collections you won't find anywhere else. Shop online or find a store near you at jared.com and dare to be devoted. Hello, everyone, and welcome to another edition of Troy Noons is an Absolute Podcast. I'm your host, as always, John Casillo, and with me today is Dan Lyons. Hello, hello. Happy uh, John is our new uh, fearless leader week. I guess. <laughs> yeah, let's go with that. I'm, uh, I wouldn't. I wouldn't consider myself an overlord necessarily. I would, just as I said in numerous posts, um, nothing really changes on <laughs> on the face of anything because I've been running things kind of behind the scenes for a while. But uh, as as people saw today, and for those listening yesterday, um, Kanye West will now be a larger part of our site, which is to me fun. Kind of changes, doesn't super change the tone, but it changes the tone enough uh, that we're hip to what the kids are listening to. I mean, if any artist in this generation streams uh, Central to New York to me, it's Kanye. (laughs) So I appreciate it. I think we are both probably among the the higher, uh, you know, the upper echelon of Kanye fans slash Syracuse sports fans. Um, That Venn diagram is is not large. (laughs) Despite the fact that he um, somehow failed to perform in New York City, despite being scheduled to do so like five different times over the in like the second half of 2016, but it's fine, um, including once I was supposed to go to. Uh, yeah, I, I mean I appreciated your post today, as I yeah. thought I made clear oh, with did. my my response pun. There, there were there were so <laughs> many puns between you and Kevin. I, uh, I feel like I feel like we're going to be rolling in puns now for for Kanye West uh, related content. I thought that was a, that was an appropriate way to to ring in the new uh, the new era of Troy Nunes as an absolute magician. Very, very much so. Uh, Just a completely unprompted <laughs> reimagining of "I Love Kanye." There it is. No, and uh, you know that was a much more enjoyable uh, ringing in than uh, than the actual Syracuse uh, basketball team gave me, which was a uh, a resounding loss to Virginia Tech on my birthday ruining everything between them and clemson i'm just i'm I'm distraught this week dan yeah this is basically the facts of uh of syracuse basketball seasons like it's stuck towards the end of like a lot of really good stuff and then it's like track number 17 of 18 or whatever and it's like what is this why is this here yeah we were done with the skits in the in the life of in the life it's not even a skit it's a bad song Uh, it's (laughs) I'd rather have the stits, even though the stits were pretty brutal too. Um, yeah, in the in the life of Pop, the life of Beheim, it's like right at the end, and you're like, I wish they could have just left this one off. Like we were, we were okay without this one. <laughs> just get to fade. Fade's great, and hopefully Beheim has his own fade. Yeah, um, hit skip, hit skip, and then and then move on to you know another win, hopefully, because we were doing be really great. well. I know last week we called we called in right after the Miami win. That was nice. And then, then we beat Pitt, which was surprising. And then we did this, which wasn't really surprising. And, you know, I tweeted from the, the Noons account yesterday. You know, there, there was a lot of people, like, very surprised by that outcome. Um, you can be as optimistic as you want, and I think you should have been optimistic based on the two games previous. But if you told yourself that that couldn't happen, then you, you just you were, haven't been paying attention to what this season has yielded so far. Yeah, and, I mean, honestly, what, what is this, like, the – this might be the like most forgivable Syracuse loss. So I, I a it this wasn't a surprising. Loss. Way to go, SC. Yeah, I mean, we finally it, it was, picked up one of those. Yeah, we need. That's what was missing on Syracuse's resume was a a good quality loss now, now to a poor, po- probable tournament team ish. I mean, Virginia Tech was. The resume. 
they, they, they right now they're obviously they would be in the tournament today. Um, they had some iffy losses before this, but the ACC like people are going to get those. The problem is most teams did their work non-conference and Syracuse didn't. So um, things would look a lot different if Syracuse had its normal non-conference of like one or two maybe losses. Uh, the five just it doesn't make things all that tenable. Um, but if we're taking this like on a completely like just on its own merits, like it's you know you can't really get too worked up about a loss. At Virginia Tech, where they haven't lost in a long time, um, a pretty good basketball team, a good coach, a coach who has proven that he knows how to play against the zone, which is uh, not everyone's strong suit. Cough, Tom Crean, cough. Um, so yeah, I mean it's it, in in and of itself, it's not the like end of the world. The problem is like the world might have already ended, and we just like are looking for. Uh, something to tell us that it hasn't, and this definitely didn't do that. Yeah, and and you know, like I said before the game, I mean, Buzz knows how to coach against Syracuse. The fact that less talented Virginia Tech teams are able to test us before and, and test better Syracuse teams should have been at least some sort of a dead giveaway. I mean, the last few games have come down to either overtime or two points. I think that was the last three contests actually. So, I mean, again, Buzz knows how to beat us. This is the first time Virginia Tech's beaten us since 1977, um, which, yeah, we actually we, we strung together eight straight wins. I know I said in the uh, kind of, you know, basic info article I wrote um, a couple days ago, despite the fact that we were in the Big East for so long together, Virginia Tech basketball didn't join the Big East until, like, 2000. Yeah, then they were out, like, yeah. three or four years later, so. It was, like, completely, like, blocked that out for some reason. Yeah, Big East, like, for those who don't remember, was weird and Dumb. not not well run. We were in the Big so, East West for, like, two years. <laughs> which almost kind of makes sense if you look at... I don't. I, I barely remember that there was a Big East West, um, which is lo- lovely. Um, yeah, I, it's, it's a whole thing. <laughs> the Big East, the way the Big East, like, formed and, and switched and had divisions for a hot minute and everything else, just weird. I, I guess like if there was a Big East West, Syracuse like would have to be in there because like right. a lot of them are very Eastern Seaboard ish, and Syracuse is not. Well, looking at like, I mean, this is probably going to create a tangent, but like there was like a three or four year stretch where like a bunch of conferences had divisions in college basketball, and like most of them were mimicking like back when like it was like right around the late nineties when a bunch of football conferences went to divisions. So like the SEC, Conference USA, um, the MAC, I think a few others. Um, yeah, and they kind of decided to, you know, reconfigure basketball for scheduling purposes to reflect that and figured they'd, like, create some sort of, you know, brand equity in the divisions. It just, uh, it never worked out. It never really made any sense because um, you could easily just create a scheduling matrix that mimics exactly what you did. Yeah, I, like, I, I get the idea of trying to, like, add some equity to rivalries. Um, it just doesn't, it's not that necessary because, like, Syracuse is probably on the upper echelon of, like, schools that have a lot of rivals, like, in basketball, which is, you know, we always make the joke about how we have, like, probably too many rivals in basketball and none in football. But, like, back in the Big East, like, we had UConn, Georgetown. Uh, this is in no particular order because it should be Georgetown, UConn. Uh, Nova, St. John's, um, and probably more schools that would consider us a rival that we really didn't care about. BC, obviously, uh, back in the day. Um, still don't really care. Um, Pitt. Like, all these schools that there are some kind of modicum of rivalry, where most only have, like, one or two. And there it's like, well, do we really need to do a whole division to, like, make this more of a thing when we can just schedule them twice? Right. Um, and then you have, like, the, the fact that basketball schedules are just really long. It, it, I guess it would make almost more sense now with the 16 team or the 18 team league. Or, it's not 18. 15 or 16 team, team leagues, but still not all that necessary. Uh, if you just protect rivalry games in the scheduling. Um, people also forget that, like, the Big East tried sits fouls for a while, and I always see that come back up. as like, oh, why don't why doesn't college go to sits fouls? And it's like, A, I don't think people remember or realize that college games are, like, eight minutes shorter than the NBA and the fouls correlate. And B, like, the Big East did it and got rid of it, what, after two seasons for a reason. Like, it did not go well. The one thing I will say, and I know others have, have supported this too, I do believe that you should be given an additional foul per overtime. I, 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 can, I can buy that. I think that's fine. I don't think um, you should be checked back in, though. Like, I think if you commit five in regulation, you're out. But if you have four and then you hit five in overtime, I think you get another one. Yeah, I'd be fine with that. Because like, that, that scales up. That, that makes sense. Because, I, I mean, 
I, I, I'd be fine with that now. Um, I was, would not be fine with that if we wanted to retroactively change the 2009 season. Because <laughs> I think uh, the five-hell rule benefited Syracuse in a lot of ways that year. Very much so. Um, but uh, even though Hashim beat, I would argue, committed 13 fouls uh, before he fouled out. Minimum. I think we, we counted a couple. Like, I think we were on the, a bus ride to, the, to a football game in its pit, and we, uh, we actually decided to put in the sits overtime game because that ride's infinitely long and count how many fouls Hashim beat uh, committed. And I think it was like 12 or 13, and he fouled out in the fourth overtime. So that was fun. Sounds like an article. Still one. That, that's, some, that's some straight, like, off-season content. Yeah, that is, actually. <laughs> Let's do how many fouls this player, who is now, like, is even in the NBA still? I don't think so. Committed during the sixth overtime game <laughs> seven years ago. Or, like, eight years ago. I mean, I'm definitely interested in stuff like that. Because you know what? Like, the site is, I feel, like, expertly tailored and always has been to off-season content. And just, like, minutia. Like, that's straight minutia. I do think people would read that. Um, because, like, just taking a random, like, mid-June shot at, at uh, I guess we have lacrosse, so, like, a, a like mid-July shot at, at UConn's never a bad thing. <laughs> just call it an oral history. <laughs> yeah, I mean, someone has done, there's been an oral history on the Sits Overtime game. I remember it was pretty good. Oh, I know uh, that. I think just the, the DO did it? The maybe? DO did it. Just, like, have an oral history of the time who she seems to be at 13,000. Just talk about that. Oh, that'd be so good. Make it not even an oral history. Just like, just add some nice graphics, like his interstitials. <laughs> I mean, that sounds yeah, that sounds like a troll nonsense post we do. Um, Dan, speaking about the actual game against Virginia Tech, um, I think we'll probably talk about that for a little bit in the first half of the podcast here. Um, how much of an effect do you think Tyler Lydon's apparent injury had on the loss? Do you feel like it was the reason? It seemed like a lot of people were sold on that on Twitter. I wasn't sold on that fact. Um, it just seemed like he was obviously an issue, you know, at center. He just wasn't as spry as he normally would be. But between point guard play, the fact that we just we weren't able to defend the interior part of the zone or the exterior, and when that happens, everything just kind of implodes. Um, yeah, I... I think Leiden was a reason. I don't think he was the reason. I'm curious if you agree. Do you, uh, sorry, do you repeat that? I dropped my internet drop for a second, so I was like out for a minute there. All good. Uh, no, I, I can't believe I actually came back without you having stopped. <laughs> that's, that's actually shocking. Uh, yeah, so what I was saying was I was, uh, I was very, very curious about um, if you felt that Leiden was the reason that Syracuse lost and really struggled on the defensive end, or if you felt like he was just a reason, because it seemed like on Twitter a lot of people were saying it was the reason. Um, I don't think it's unfair to say it was a major one. Um, it, it's tough because, like, clearly the team, I think I think we've proven so far this year, the team performs best when he is the best player on the floor, um, and he has the ability to be. I just, I don't think he's, like, He's almost like not ready for prime time. Obviously, he had like no showed last night. He had seven rebounds, which is nice, and that was like that was it. He had one for five from the field, and so like, hey, you Tyler Lydon needs to take more shots than five, even if he's not hitting. Like, Lydon should have been one for twelve last night, not one for five. He needs to keep on shooting. Um, but I, I think he he is struggling to find his role within the offense, and it's tough in college basketball for a forward to be and a non-ball handler to be like the go-to guy. Like, we've seen that even years where we've had really good ones. Like, Wes Johnson, like, was, was our best player. I don't know that I would say he was our go-to guy. Like, he hit open shots. He was really efficient. But he wasn't, like, a ball-dominant player. Um, Which is why he never should have been drafted when he, where he was. Yeah, I think that's fair. Um, Andy Routens was, like, more of the go-to guy. Plus, Scoop was great. Plus, Trish was very good. Plus, uh, everyone else was, like, oh, even more. Even, like, Chris Joseph was more of a ball-dominant player than him. Um so you, you have this, uh, like, it's, it's very rarely, I mean, it's very hard. Like, what, the, I'd say the, the two times we've had recently where our clear focal point of the offense has been a front court player, um, and Leiden's more diverse than either of these guys offensively, but we're like Rick Jackson, and he had a lot more help, and Ren Rack a couple of years ago, who didn't have more help, but was just so good that it didn't matter. Um, so I, I think this is like, I just don't think he's quite there. Like, he has the skills. He has games where he goes nuts. He's super efficient, like, when he ha- when he has those games. Um, I think he can almost stand to be a little more selfish. I think 
and and I just don't think our backcourt play is good enough to uh, to like have him go for two points. So I don't I don't know that I really put all the blame on him, but like clearly if you get a fourteen point game from Leiden, it's a different ball game than than what it, what it you know ended up being, uh, which was a ten point Virginia Tech uh, win. So. Yeah, I, I don't know. I, I think every a lot of players could have played better last night. Torian was great, obviously, but he's still kind of lost on defense, which is to be expected. Um, I, I, you know, how often do people who are thrown into playing like power forward and some center uh, adjust to the defense in the first year? I, I don't remember the last person to like play really effective interior defense in the zone in year one. Um, Battle was like okay, White was okay, but like neither of those guys were super efficient. Um, but yeah. Roberson was alive, fourteen and ten, like seven free from the field. He had some nice putbacks. And he's clearly like, well, that's just gonna happen. Oh, I mean, yeah. Paul Harris played like thirty-six minutes a game, and Beheim found times to tee off on him. Um, in oh nine, but uh, yeah, I think Leiden was definitely a major factor. Um, if he plays better, Syracuse, uh, you know, if they don't win that game, they they put forth a better showing. Um, that only counts for so much in the position Syracuse is in, unfortunately. Um, but that, I mean, that's, that's been an issue in a lot of Syracuse's losses is Leiden struggles to get himself going. Our guards haven't found, you know, they, there just isn't that chemistry where the guards know exactly when to find Leiden, when to, uh, how to set him up for plays. So I think that's, that's like one of the things this team really needs to solve if it's going to hit its ceiling going forward. Um, on the bright side, it might mean Tyler Leiden's here next year. So, uh, I don't know that, you know, that's going to just calm too many people down, but that that is reality. I don't know that you can count on Leiden being uh, two and done after like what he's looked like this year, because he, you know, there are front door players that he drafted in the NBA, and yeah, a lot of it's based on potential, which he has, but um, he's also uh, now exposed himself as more of a, a liability in terms of not being able to hit his own shot and not being able to be a focal point. Right. And I think those are great points. You know, last year as a six man, he kind of, he was able to carve out a niche for himself um, I, I think this year, you're right. Like as a focal point, he just he can't create his own shot. But he's also dealing with a situation where you know he's got unfamiliar guard play. Nobody's really set up to feed him the ball. So I mean, we live in a world where Chris McCullough was drafted in the first round. So I don't necessarily think it's out of the question that Lydon leaves. Um, no, definitely not. It's never out of the question in college basketball. Like. You can never say this person is absolutely not leaving until the date passes. Right. I, th- I think, to be honest, like he's gonna t- I think he's somebody who's a prime example who would take advantage. I mean, Torian might, too, to be honest. Uh, guys who are going to take advantage of the new rules that allow them to really get some good opinions um, about their draft status and stock and then uh, depart. Um, I think this is a whole other conversation about recruiting for later. Um, that, you know, if Leiden stays, we're obviously in a much better position than if he goes. Uh, but yeah, I, I think that, you know, there's a lot to be said about this season, no matter how it ends up, um, that when everybody showed up and how they showed up, um, you know, Gillen showed up early enough, but still not like early enough where he could have been, you know, spending time with Leiden, spending time with some of the other guys and, and, and you know, getting some tendencies down, creating chemistry. Um, you know, Torian Thompson obviously showed up late. Andrew White showed up late. I mean, these are guys that would normally, like, yes, teams are going to, and especially Syracuse, are going to replace guys on a year-to-year basis, and that shouldn't mean that you just completely tank as a result. But the fact that all these guys were replacements and showed up so late in the game, um, it, it can't be understated, you know, overstated how much, like, that, that lost time for them, whether it was, you know, two weeks or two months, um, that they really didn't allow them to develop within what this team can do as, as well as it could have. Yeah, I think, and I'll admit, I think I underestimated um, how important uh, chemistry and just time to learn and develop in the zone is to Syracuse. Obviously, we know we're a very unique program because of, of the defense we play and the style and everything. Um, I thought that there would be less of a transition, and I thought that the whole, like, argument even before white and i mean i think gillen was in the in the fold pretty early but um even before white joined like i thought the whole like the um ennis and stuff uh ennis and malachi and everyone else leaving early mccullough even uh was a little bit alarmist and i think that <clears throat> the people who wrote that um there were like severe consequences from just like a, a rash of players leaving earlier than expected plus ncaa sanctions plus everything else actually wound up being pretty spot on 
Um, imagine how much better this team would be with Malachi Richardson. I think he would be, A, like, he was just a, a really strong uh, go-to scorer who was completely unafraid and could spot up and would be stretching defenses and taking big shots and giving Lodge more room to operate. Um, but also, you know, it would, it would, it would be less, there'd be less of a necessity to focus on, on guys like White and Gillen who, you know, maybe they still come. I think Gillen still would be a guy you need to take in. White, you know, maybe he still comes and understands he's not going to be playing 40 minutes a game. Who knows? But um, I think that would, I mean, you just go down the line. It starts with really Ennis was like the first one who was really a problematic to leave because I don't think anyone expected him to be a one-and-done guy, which has been covered a million times. But um, I, I almost look at this year, if Syracuse is going to miss the tournament, um, and this isn't to say that anyone should stay or leave or that they owe anything to the program. Like you, you said, Torian, obviously Leiden, um, and whomever else. Uh, battle as well. They should all, especially with the new rules, there's no reason for them not to go and at least see what their stock is. Right. Um, but uh, if if there's a, a, a slight bright side to um, this year being so so crappy, it is that it might prove to kind of be a hard reset for the program in terms of just getting getting themselves, you know, the program getting itself back into a healthier state with its scholarships. Um, because if you then have all those, <clears throat> we're working in a situation where I think a lot of people. Uh, assume Lyda would be gone after this year. Um, I bet the coaches think that's a distinct possibility, something they've accounted for. Um, if you bring all those guys back or two of those guys back or something, then you have on, on a really solid footing and you start to reverse the trend that's happened. And I, I, again, I don't blame anyone who is left for leaving. Like They do not owe anything to the Syracuse program. They were all fine to leave, even if a lot of them haven't really found immediate success in the NBA. Like That's totally cool. They're still making millions of dollars. You can't blame them for that. But it has... Um, I just don't think we, it's not like Kentucky, where Kentucky is built to withstand those losses. Like, that that's the way that program is constructed. Um, it actually, the program actually kind of gets, runs into, like, a weird spot if you have guys staying, especially if, like, when the Harrison twins a couple years ago, who were seen as, as first-round picks and ended up being, like, nice players, but not, like, super superstars, and then they had their minutes eaten into in that season where they went undefeated and then lost to Wisconsin. Um, like, that, them having a bunch of guys stay... They ended up having a great year that year, but it, it almost made for like a weird spot because Cal was so aggressive, is always so aggressive in recruiting five stars across the board. So, um, just very different constructions of programs, and Syracuse is like clearly we're, we're we're equipped to handle like a one and done here and there. We recruit them like guys who are that good. We go after them, but I think we're going after guys who are going to be one and dones because we expect them to be not like Ennis who blew up and was one of the best point guards in the country or Malachi who really wasn't even on that radar until the tournament and had a great tournament and took advantage as he should. So, um, you know, it, it hopefully uh, this, you know, things work themselves out. I think, um, especially cause like recruiting this year hasn't been like the best class or the, the most highly touted class that we've had coming in. Um, so th that, that's a really big, like overarching thing to look at with Syracuse basketball right now. If, if uh, this year, if it doesn't go well, if that should at least like beget a, slightly more uh, veteran roster heading into next year, which could be, you know, obviously Bayhive, it could be Bayhive last year, so. Yeah, and, and I'm still, I'll still entertain the factor right now that, that, that it could be Bayhive's last year. I think it's, un it's just unfortunate the way things are right now that if guys don't come back, we're going to be in a very kind of tenuous spot. Um, the, some outside the program may see this as, kind of a referendum on the way Beheim's done things. I don't see it that way. I see it as this is a referendum on a perfect storm of NCAA sanctions, guys leaving early, and Beheim needing to get outside his comfort zone recruiting, and instead of doing what he has been doing, which is recruiting a lot of three and four star stars um, and recruiting against teams that we can beat on the trail, and then the occasional five, um, recent program success, again, the lack of roster spots, have forced us to, we don't have time projects, and, you know, Beheim said in his biography, he didn't want to be up against North Carolina and Kansas and Duke because he couldn't beat them um, on a regular basis. And, you know, this year kind of proved it, that when we were forced to, because of the amount of spots that we have available on the roster, we were forced to go after some four- and five-star, you know, high fours and five-star guys against Kentucky and Kansas and Duke and North Carolina. Uh, you know, we've been losing uh, repeatedly. Uh, and it's just unfortunate that, you know, when you have, whether it's a Quade Green situation or just a situation where we just haven't been able to get in on 
those guys early enough. Um, I don't think there's anyone at fault. I just think, again, it's, it's a combination of all of those factors, um, and it's something that we're going to have to deal with. I don't think that I don't think that it's a referendum on Beheim. I just think it's an unfortunate side note to what the end of his career, which could look a little rockier than it should just because of, of a couple kind of, you know, recruiting, recruiting related issues. Yeah, it's definitely a confluence of things. It's, um, and I think Syracuse, you know, while the, the zone has become a staple and, um, I don't, I mean, I, I hope Hopkins keeps it in some regards as we've seen, like, not, not just like a few moments, like we've seen numerous instances where playing the zone got Syracuse farther than it would, than it probably would have gone if it didn't play the zone. Um, Pretty much, yeah, pretty much every Final Four run Syracuse has had. Definitely 2013, 96, definitely 96. 03, we had the best player in the country, which helped. Um, maybe 03 was less zone-dependent than some of these other years, but 13, 96, I would argue 16, because, uh, you know, a bunch of those teams were to- totally flummoxed by it. Even that was even the best zone team. Like, 13 might have been a, one of our best zone teams, and that offense wasn't very good, but the zone was just so nasty, it well, didn't what matter. They did, what they did against Marquette in that Elite Eight game is still, like, the frameable, like, this is what the zone does at its peak. That, like, that, 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 that two-game stretch, which I was at those games in D.C., like, Indiana was probably the most talented team of the country, and, we, you know, we make, Tom, we, make jokes about, we make jokes about Tom Crean to this day based on that game, and, and the year after didn't help, but, like, that game was, like, the... The, probably the 2-3 zone game, if you have to, like, define one in the Bayheim era, honestly. And then the next day, uh, Marquette, like, or two days later, Marquette, like, barely looked like they had ever, like, they for a while there, I, I, it felt like Marquette hadn't scored in 10 minutes. They ended up with, like, what, 47 or something? Uh, I think it was and that team, was it 39? It was, like 39. It was even, <laughs> they didn't even hit I looked it up. Game. Yeah, like, they, the, the clamps went down so hard in that game, like, it wasn't even like a total route, like it was it was bad, but Syracuse wasn't scoring either. But the like there was at no moment, around. yeah, because because after a while, like Syracuse would throw a little bit. I think it was like maybe like fifty something to thirty nine. Was like fifty seven. I'm going with fifty seven thirty nine without looking. I'm pretty sure that's the score. Yeah, I was yeah, I was there. I should know this. Um, <laughs> actually, I don't know why I expected to know like specific scores of of these teams. People, I hold my I hold myself to a high a too high a standard. Um, fifty five thirty nine. So, like, yeah, Syracuse won by 14. It felt like Syracuse was up by 50. <laughs> like, because Marquette, which, again, this is Buzz Williams, who, as we've covered, uh, knows how to play against his own. Um, like, pretty much every other time he's coached, like, since he took over for Crean, uh, has done a, at least a decent job. Even when he wasn't beating Syracuse, it was a talent issue. It wasn't, like, a executing issue. Um, that day, it was an everything issue. Uh, and then last year, there were a lot of, there were similar things. Um the, the, the defense just really put the clamps on people. This year, um, unfortunately, just it's just a lot of experience, honestly. Right. Uh, last year was a pretty young team, too, but there were still guys who, who knew what they were doing. This year, it's just, it's Roberson. Like, who, who's super experienced in the zone? Roberson Coleman. and Coleman, who basically play. isn't playing anymore. Um, I mean, Howard has a year, but he doesn't play that much, and it's all a year. Wyden has a year, and he's probably the best zone defender we have because he can play the five and is a dip shot blocker. Like, that's not a lot. This is worth an article, and and I'm kind of calling this out even to the the folks on the staff, too, if they want to combine forces, because I don't have the time for this. Um, Looking at maybe the last, like, 10, 15 years and seeing, like, is this the lowest percentage of minutes in the zone that, like, we've ever returned? Uh, it, It has to be up there. Right, like I, that's what I mean. Like I think it's pretty close. Um, it, even a team that looked like they had a lot of turnover going in, uh, the 0-9-10 team, and like I mean, people were talking gloom and doom with that squad. You know, after everybody declared for the draft, um, and obviously that the guys who declared weren't good zone defenders. No, they, they were actually ter- they, they were the reason why we were a terrible defensive team. Right, and, like, and that's not even um, that's the- not even a knock on those guys. I mean, Paul, Devo, and Johnny all inhabit their own place in Syracuse lore and for good reason but they were all bad defenders yeah I think you could argue maybe Paul was okay was a decent defender when he had to play the two yes. which was not 09 he didn't barely played there in 09 right. um, because we had Routens who was a great like maybe the best at the top of the zone um, and then Johnny couldn't play anywhere but the one and Devo couldn't play anywhere but the two um, so yeah like it, it, Routens was even playing on the wing that year which was just weird to think about in retrospect, 
because one year later in Routens, it's like eight steals against UNC and totally like ran Roy Williams off the court at MSG. Um, so yeah, it's just uh, this wasn't this this I, I think that that hypothesis uh, that hypothesis I can't speak tonight is probably pretty spot on. Like I I would be surprised if there are many uh, Syracuse teams, maybe there are three honestly because it was so freshman heavy. Yeah. Um, which but again, like when you have Carmelo Anthony. Uh, kind of that solves a lot player. of problems, right? Uh, and again, that was like that was a good zone team, but that team I think played some more man than usual, um, if I remember correctly. Not like a ton, but it was more man heavy than some of the other like post '96 teams. Um, and like obviously that team was an offensive like juggernaut because of Carmelo and, and Jerry and Hack and everyone else. And you had two really experienced centers in the zone who knew what they were doing, Always helps. which is big. Um, okay, on that note, a little halftime. Uh, Dan, what have you been drinking? Oh, uh, a decent amount um, since last time. Uh, a decent amount of different stuff, too. Um, I don't remember if I brought up the Lost Nation Dosa. Um, you did. Which I did? Yes. Okay, well, that was, that, I mean, I haven't had another one, but that was good. <laughs> um, so since then, uh, I had uh, Innocent Gun, uh, their uh, rum, like, fat, their rum, cask uh, aged version of their signature, uh, signature beer which I've had before um, just really solid I was at a, a Scottish uh, themed restaurant so I figured that was appropriate and I didn't have a great beer list but I did have that so that was good um, I had some sweet water which I don't always find up here but it's a, always a you know a pretty rock solid drink a little too hearted um, had which I found a lot recently uh, Deuce Island's Bourbon County brand stout which is delicious as always um had uh, Allagash, their strong golden ale, which was uh, quite good. Um, very different from, from Allagash on their normal, like, uh, their normal Hefeweizens. Um, I really enjoyed that. I don't think I had had that before. Um, I have had, uh, from, I think, an Illinois brewery, uh, Moody Tun, um, their Steeped Emperor's Lemon Saison, which was super interesting. Um, I thought it did a really pretty nice job. It was definitely more... It wasn't like a, like a, your classic saison. It was definitely more lemony, um, but it was, it was really unique. You know, not the best thing I've had this week, but definitely worth a try. Very refreshing. Um, and then probably the best thing I've had this week uh, was Monday. I had uh, Hill Farmstead's Galaxy Single Hop Pale Ale, which yeah. was absolutely delicious. I mean, Hill Farmstead. Like, I almost feel like I know that there's like plenty of press on them. Like, they are so good. Everything they make is so good. I'm jealous that, that, that you get to have them at any point. I've I've literally never had anything from them because it's Oh really? It's hard to find trade partners for them because of their like mostly Vermont specific distro and like then obviously like if they're on draft you're not gonna be able to trade that. Yeah, like I see a fair amount of them like at good beer bars down here, but it's it's always on draft. It's right. like I don't know if I've ever actually had like a can or a bottle of Hell Farmstead. Yeah, I, uh, I'm definitely gonna like set alerts on Untapped when I'm in New York in March, so that I can. Yeah, scout it's out. it's not the hardest thing to find around here, but like you you know you're not gonna find cans, so otherwise I would definitely send some over if I see any. Obviously, I will, but fair enough. Fair to have, enough. do not remember seeing seeing it uh, anywhere in stores. Mm-hmm. All right, so for me, uh, had a bunch in the last week. Um, I had from King Harbor at Tiki Hut IPA. It's uh, like a tropical IPA they put together. Um, I had Monkish release their uh, their latest uh, kind of hazy double IPA, East Coast style. It was a deep concentration. Um, first uh, pour I had of it was was good. I wouldn't say like amazing, but then um, I've noticed with, with and a lot of other folks have noticed this too with uh, with Monkish's double IPAs and IPAs. Um, yeah, you, you give it like a week. And it really starts to drink really well. Um, and I noticed that I've had three of the four cans um, that I bought uh, from them. And I, I think they've definitely gotten better uh, with each one, as I've given each one a couple days more. Um, some others I had. Uh, I went down to Brewery Tarot, their, uh, their sour-focused uh, you know, tasting room. And really cool spot. Uh, had a couple different things. Had their uh, Rosé Goza, which was a very interesting combo and exactly what you would expect from it. Um, I had their uh, Tart of Darkness, but with raspberries and vanilla, which was uh, pretty fantastic. I mean, for those who have had Tart of Darkness, uh, just add two very good flavors, and there you go. Um, and Vindictive, uh, it's their uh, Red Wine uh, Black Tuesday Hybrid. 
which was pretty legit. And I also had another, I know it's funny, last week I mentioned a uh, basil saison, and then this week I had another basil saison, uh, a beer avento uh, from the brewery, which uh, was actually better than the full steam one. I was, uh, I was really impressed with that. Um, had Bottle Logic's Dark Star November, just the Imperial Bourbon Barrel Aged Stout, that uh, got rave reviews when it was first released a couple years ago. Um, also had oh uh, Noble released their own kind of East Coast style double IPA, 24 karat juice, uh, that was very very good. I actually got one of the last pours um, of that Noble at Noble Ale Works. And what else have I had? Oh, and then I also had from Monkish uh, Celestial Fuzz um, was a uh, sour blonde, perhaps. I want to say yes. Let's double check. I know it had boysenberry and, uh, oh, sorry, Cezanne, but with, uh, yeah, boysenberry and uh, nectarines. It was very, very good. Uh, they always put out some great sours. Um, and then last night, had some birthday brews, including uh, Firestone Walker's uh, Hel Dorado, their uh, blonde barley wine that they make annually. So, yeah, busy, uh, busy weekend, but uh, a, a good one. Yeah, so in our post-beer uh, segment, which I know, uh, and I want to reiterate our warning for at least one listener, <laughs> I'm still we not may sure touch if on... Was, if he was trying to be sarcastic and just, like, forgot the sarcasm fun. Maybe. Like, it came off, like, really, like, pointed. Like, I, I'm, I feel like I'm a pretty good judge of sarcasm on the internet, but, you know, I apologize if that was sarcasm, even though he never came back to, like, <laughs> check in on it. Um... <laughs> But, uh, yeah, we may touch on things that don't pertain only to Syracuse uh, in this seg- segment. I actually don't even know what we're going to talk about, but I wanted to bring this up first um, because it just happened. Turn it off. Uh, yeah, you can leave. Like, that's fine. <laughs> you can have to listen. It's okay. Um, but please do if, you, if you're interested. Um, all, uh, UConn just hired Rhett Lashley as their offensive coordinator. What's his... Uh... Auburn. Oh. Hmm. He, all right, so I said, what? Like, how is that happening? And then uh, one of the UConn people said that he was making, uh, one of the UConn beat writers, uh, Lashley made 600000 a year at Auburn, and he will make 350000 a year at UConn, which means he wasn't asked back to Auburn. Like, that, that, what that means is... In a state that's Gus more Malzahn, to live in. Yeah, at a, at a smaller school. Gus Malzahn, like, cl- like, clearly, and this isn't even a knock, this isn't like me trying to show UConn, like, this is just the reality he was not asked back to Auburn, which is, like, we just saw this same thing today with Louisville, where um, it kind of was uh, intimated that Todd Brantham wasn't going to return, and then he went and took the Mississippi State job, and apparently Louisville had already, like, had the framework for a deal with Mississippi State's defensive coordinator, so they wound up they wound up just swapping, yeah. which is hilarious. Um, but yeah, so it's, like, one of those things where they didn't want to fire him because he was, like, a guy that came up with Malzahn. Uh, basically their entire, like, he, I think he was one of Malzahn's, maybe, I, I have to look at the background, I think he was one of his old, like, maybe even high school quarterbacks, and he's kind of just been with them for a while, and Auburn's offense has been kind of a total mess for years, um, since Nick Marshall was there. So, it was like a non, it, it, I'm reading this as a non-firing firing. At the same time, UConn, under Andy Ed's last time, ran the most milquetoast, boring, ineffective offense in the world, and now at least we'll have an idea of something interesting. It might not work. It could be awful. But at least it's something that's different and not being run in the AAC, really. Um, so I think that's a good hire for them. Well, it's interesting now, too, because, I mean, you remember that article I wrote last year talking about how we were kind of a unique selling proposition in the, in the Northeast. Now, at this point, we're not a unique selling proposition. I would argue that the BC— They're very different offenses. Well, yeah, but, I mean, in general, I would say, like, BC has become the only stereotypical— Northeast offense left, and that's only going to meet head, Meatheadish. Yeah, meat, Meatheadish, as, <laughs> as, as as one editor of a certain website coined on a, on Brent Axe's program today. But yeah, it's uh, yeah, it, it's weird that BC wants to tether themselves to that when every literally every other school in the region, including UMass, has, has moved far away from it. Yeah, I mean, I guess that you can almost argue that they're now they're now the inefficiency, which. I don't buy because the inefficiency, like running a bad pro style offense that's been bad for years, like I don't think that's uh, an effective thing, even if it's now unique. Um, but you know, whatever works, I guess, or whatever doesn't work, but is good, just good enough, I guess. <laughs> to do that, yeah. 
a great win. Yeah, I, I mean, I, I don't know what, what's better. Is it is it better to have a terrible offense and and schedule yourself to a smart point to get yourself to a bowl game and still look terrible doing it, or is it better to make all the hires to run a good offense if you're like Rutgers and still be terrible? Um, that's an inter- that's actually more of an interesting debate. Um, I like to think that the latter is the better process, but college football is very fire happy now. Um, so and fire happy, like, like I don't so. Yeah, in a lot of cases, I know we had like a, we talked about Sunday nights a little bit earlier, which was like kind of a unique situation. But um, yeah, I, I don't think coaches are being given a lot of uh, headway or time to develop their systems. So I think you have to have a lot of trust in. Um, your athletic director and your fan base to like fully implement something, and for UConn, like this is definitely going to be a thing because I know there isn't much like way there isn't a lot of room to go but up, so that that helps I guess. But like they don't have the pieces for a Gus Malzahn offense, so it's going to take a little bit. But they were so bad to begin with that like whatever year one looks like probably isn't going to be any worse. I guess my thing is like where are you going to find the pieces for a Gus Malzahn offense though in the Northeast? It's a good question, especially when you're playing outside in a stadium an hour and a half away from your campus. Um, not an hour and a half, it's like an hour, whatever. Um, yeah, it's still far. Uh, farther, they want, farther than they want to tell you. Like, you're, you're not going to see Rentschler on an official visit unless they're, like, busting everyone over there, and then it's kind of, like, very revealing of how far that is. Um, yeah, it, it's, uh, it's interesting. I, I give them credit, because it is a little bit of outside-the-box thinking, and... Like, all the sum of all fears with Randy Edsel returning is, like, now UConn is a lower-ceiling program than they were when he left because of the conference they're in, and he's never shown a uh, propensity towards running an interesting offense. I think he, he kind of sort of tried at Maryland, but it was uh, an abject failure pretty much every time. Um, it's also because so he's like, like fifth-string quarterback the whole time. That didn't help. Um, Detrimental, yeah, to slash, slash linebacker. Um, <laughs> not the best. Uh, so I will say, like, this is an interesting move, and I I mean, Lasso's had some success. Obviously, being behind Malzahn um, kind of shields, like, the amount of credit you get, but also the amount of blame. Um, but, like, he's been there since 13. Like, he, he's there when they developed that Nick Marshall team, which was crazy. Um, the problem is, like, the last couple of years have left a lot to be desired to the point where, like, Malzahn, hey, this, this year's team was a defensive team. And Malzahn, like, is himself going to probably come close to the hot seat at some point if they don't start figuring out this offense. Uh, he looked into Jarrett Stidham, leaving Baylor, which I think will be very good for Auburn. But, um, obviously, uh, it, the, the jury's out on, on how good Lashley will be. But, again, like, I think when you're UConn, going outside the box is probably a good thing. And uh, we'll see how it goes because, it, again, cannot be worse than the last, like, three years of UConn's offense. Or the last, really, like, however many years since Ed's left of UConn's offense. Mm. Yeah, and on that note, I think we're good on UConn's offer today, because uh, you've already gotten more time than you deserve, Huskies. That's fair. We haven't talked about Tulane in, like, months, so... We haven't. I agree. Well, uh, <laughs> we, might, we might get to Tulane today. I feel like it might have to be tabled. They did want to talk about Monday's game. Um... The college football playoff national championship. I'm sure many watched. Clemson won. I wasn't happy about it. Um, I also felt like Alabama did a lot of un-Alabama things to get there, including the final play when they pretty much handed Clemson a wide-open touchdown um, and and committed a penalty to get them close enough for that wide-open touchdown. Uh, Both of those moves just did not seem like Saban-esque things for a team to do, especially a, a team that was loaded with talent on the defensive side. Yeah, I, I think the, the thing people have been saying is just Alabama's offense, what they have, 11 straight three and outs or uh, like failed yeah. three uh, third down attempts. I think the, with the way the pace, I mean, Clemson played at a ridiculous pace. They ran, what, 98, 99 plays. That's smart. Um, yeah, I mean, that's what Clemson does, and they did it, like, really, really well, and there's only so much you can do with a tired defense. Like, it's a tired, really, really good defense, but not but keeping those players on the field um, mitigates a lot of the depth that Alabama dominates with, and then just having Deshaun Watson, like, we've talked about 
the one thing that, that Clemson had a definitive edge on um, over Alabama was at quarterback. Um, they had by far the better quarterback. And in college football, that means, I mean, at any level of football, it means a lot. Um, we've seen Alabama overcome it in recent years. Last year, obviously, was the, the other Clemson-Alabama game where, you know, Coker was fine. Watson was still way better. Um, and Alabama is like one of those teams that can overcome that. But, but oh, most of the time, I'd say if you have... Uh, a better quarterback by the uh, margin between 2016 Deshaun Watson and Jalen Hurts. Like, you're going to win the game most of the time. Um, and Alabama just quite couldn't quite mitigate it because Watson started dialing up uh, plays by the bunches in the fourth quarter. He just did whatever um, the hell he wanted in the fourth. Like, yeah, he was so good. Like, this is a weird year because Clemson, like, people, I, I almost think, underplay, especially when we're heading into the matchup, they, like, underplayed how if he comes and looked throughout most of the year, yeah, I mean, they, um, they lost to Pitt, and Pitt was fine. They weren't great, obviously. They they almost lost to Troy. They should have lost to NC State. Uh, they almost lost to Auburn when when Justin Malzahn looked like he was actively trying to hurt his team with how he managed quarterbacks. <laughs> um, I think we talked about that after that happened. Um, still to this day, one of the worst bouts of coaching I've ever witnessed from a coach that almost won a national championship. Or that... Almost won a national. No, did win a national championship with Cam Newton. Um, no, he wasn't head coach. He was uh, assistant. He was OC. Um, almost won one. They lost to uh, who beat Auburn? Florida State. Florida State. Right. In a game that um, they should have won. Yeah, like had Florida State on the ropes. Basically, like that Auburn was to Alabama to what Florida State Clemson uh, was to Florida State. Like those games actually kind of tracked very similarly. Um, not because of the pace, but just in terms of like the, the flow of the game. Um, but yeah, Clemson just, I think they, they just wore that defense down and football, the offense has edges in a lot of ways. And when you're keeping the same 11 on the field, like no matter how good they are, uh, it's going to be hard for them to, to deal with guys like Deshaun Watson and Mike Williams and whomever else. Um, I think that like, you'll almost see the difference between the programs and like Clemson clearly like they, they deserve to win the game. Um, Next year, Clemson's going to lose Watson. They lose oh, Wayne Gallman. They lose Mike, Mike Williams and Artavis Scott. Um, and then a host of those defensive players. I would be very surprised if Clemson was a New Year's Six team next, uh, New Year's Six team next year. I think they'll be pretty good, but I think it'll be a major step down. Um, Alabama doesn't have those. Like that's the difference. Alabama will sustain pretty much any loss. Like you can, lo- they can lose uh like 10 guys to the nfl early and they will have 10 more step right in clemson is not quite at that level no one really is um so that's that'll be where you see the difference and like alabama will be right back in the in the title conversation next year i don't think clemson will be on paper maybe trevor lawrence maybe they could i mean as florida state did this year they were similar well right and yeah you look i mean just how the arrangement goes too is that the acc is guaranteed a spot therefore like okay well who else is going to get it the coastal is and a mess. If you assume Florida State's going to be really good, which I think they should be, um, national side then you calling it right now. Maybe I think I think see back to back. I I that's the one thing. It's like I I find it hard to root for Clemson, and if you want to know why, just to look at Brent Axe's tweets from uh, Jay Slater. Um, that's a good good yeah good indicator. Um, I will say I was very happy for the ACC to get another title. The ACC, and I said it after the game, and this isn't like a hot take anymore. Like this is just kind of well regarded at this point, even Paul Feinbaum agrees. Um, the ACC was the best conference in college football this year. At the end of the day, yeah. Like I was, I was on board. Say the Big Ten heading in, but I didn't think the margin was that huge. Uh, and the Big Ten, like I don't think bowl games are everything, but the Big Ten like really shit the bed in the bowl games, and the ACC was just so good. It wasn't like a couple game difference. The ACC was so much better than every other power conference in the bowl games, and including winning the national title, winning two other New Year's Six games, um, you know, Florida State beating Michigan, a team that, you know, was on the fringe of the playoff, and Florida State wasn't really. Uh, it was looked at as like a kind of a rebuild year for Florida State. Like, maybe, the, I don't think the ACC was like that, that much better than the Big Ten or the SEC, but I think they were. I think they were better. And when was the last time the ACC could say it was the best uh, conference in college football, even if only for a year? I, I don't. I don't know. <laughs> I really couldn't tell you. Nineteen fifties, somewhere when they Maybe. started. I don't. Yeah, and there was like what? How many conferences were there? Not that many. Yeah. Um, so yeah, I think that's uh, a good thing for for Syracuse. Like the 
ACC was really good this year. Um, and it wasn't just at the top. Like, there were some really solid programs all across. And even when, like, Syracuse is one of the bad teams, quote unquote, in the ACC, it's one of the few teams that didn't make a bowl. There yeah, were, Syracuse was, I think Syracuse would have been, would have beaten the hell out of, uh, healthy at least, would have beaten the hell out of the uh, 12th best team in every other conference, probably. Yeah. Like, Syracuse versus, who in the SEC is, like, the 12th best team? Uh, no Miss? Mississippi Ooh. Well, Ole Miss Miss is like a weird, had a weird year. Um, They had no defense, so it would have been interesting. But like, I mean, Kansas, obviously. Yeah, I think Syracuse would have smoked Mizzou. Um, I know Mizzou had like a nice one over Arkansas at the end of the year, but who didn't? Um, I think think the world had a nice one over Arkansas at the end of the year. Um, Actually, we have a a transitive win over Arkansas. You're right. (laughs) Who in the Pac-12? Who's the who's the who's number twelve of the Pac-12? Or even if you want to do like number Oregon ten State. of the Pac-12, since well, twelve is Oregon oh, we would yeah, we would destroy. Oregon State wasn't. I Oregon State was probably better than I thought they would be this year. I think Syracuse would have beat them without too much of an issue. Number 10, if, you're, if we're assuming it's Dungy, Syracuse. Number ten was probably ASU, which is a little iffy. Yeah, that would have been. A, oh my god, there would have been so many points. <laughs> that them or Cal, and either of those would have been a fun game. If we if Syracuse played Arizona State this past year, um, you could I, I would believe you if you said that Syracuse scored eighty points and lost. <laughs> um, uh, yeah, I mean I, I think just overall like the, the ACC top to bottom was really strong, and when you have teams like like Pitt who was you know I don't think they were great, but they were good enough to beat Clemson, um, and they were you know middle like middle tier uh, I'd say, and they beat Penn State too. Not Penn State wasn't playing the way they were at the end of the year, but they still they beat them. Um, yeah, I, I think it was a really nice nice year to be a, a, a Go ACC fan, and um, should hopefully help uh, continue to help put to rest like the whole. I mean, I, I don't know that you can really even give an argument to the pro Big East staying in the Big East people at this point. I think they're too far gone, but just another you know example that this was a, a nice, really legitimate power conference to go to. Um, because just a couple years ago, people were you know, making fun of the ACC like it was just this awful thing. Even even when this is the second national title in four year in what four or five years for the ACC, like it's it's doing pretty well for itself at the top too. So agreed, agreed. Um, yeah, Dan, do you have any other topics today? I feel like uh, I mean, we we rarely have an episode that goes under an hour, but at the same time, I feel like I don't want to just belabor this thing because we don't have just. Just make sure it hits it now. Yeah, I mean, I I don't really have anything else. I mean, it was kind of a late week aside from the Virginia Tech game. Um, recruiting should start picking back up because I think the uh, what's the dead period end tomorrow? I think something like that. Soon in the next couple of days, and then obviously you have you know college football is actually over, which is very sad. Um, yeah, the longest off season ever. It really is college football off season. I mean, I. It you know it helps that you have like little intermediate like intermediate things like signing day and then spring football like there are little things here and there Bill but like actual starting. oh yes um, the one hundred thirty of them this year yeah. what up Coastal Carolina <laughs> I'm, I'm very much looking forward to to riding hard for the Chanticleers next year the Joe Moglia era in FBS begins that's gonna last like three years because he's like he's and then he super old. yeah he's is he in the seventies? He's close. He's. I think he's close. Yeah. Um, it it is a long off season, and it's uh, it's gonna be feel longer. Syracuse basketball doesn't have a miraculous turnaround. He is sixty seven. So yeah. I got I got three years. Like he's gonna. That sounds about that right. Program. That's not a bad program up for like a like if if some some other stupid realignment thing happens, he's gonna set up coastal to like get like a a look from Conference USA, and like that's gonna be enough. He's gonna be like, all right. Yeah, and he'll and they'll probably endow their their coaching spot or something silly, and they'll have way more money to spend on a coach than they have any right to. Right. Which is fine. I, I I'm fine with Coastal Carolina being good. Maybe they'll even steal their yeah. Clemson. Yeah. Uh, we'll we'll see. No. <laughs> no, Clemson's really well established. I think what I think Clemson. Here's the thing: like people, 
we're talking about like the ratings being down, and a lot of that I think is that Clemson was in the game. Um, Clemson's not really a brand, like a big brand. There's not that many of those in college football. Uh, I don't think Clemson's there, but I think if anyone's going to become one, like they're in pretty good, they're they're well situated because um, I think they're I don't think they're going anywhere unless Dabo leaves, and I don't think Dabo would leave unless Alabama take approaches him after Saban retires. So yeah, it's Alabama only. I also think that. Um... Yeah, I, I, I think Clemson is, you know, I think Bill wrote a good article about this on SB Nation the other day. He was talking about, like, this really was a five-year build, and it started with that disaster of an Orange Bowl game. Uh, the Clemson we grew up with is not this Clemson. Um, the Clemson that, you know, a lot of the people we talk to about Clemson online, with, this isn't the Clemson they grew up with either. I think Clemson, you're right, is here to stay as long as Dabo's there. If Dabo leaves, then things get a little bit iffier because of the rising tide of schools in the ACC. Um, you look at the fact that South Carolina has, has proven they're one good hire away from being a top five to seven team. Um, if the SEC East gets their, like, get their shit together, there's, just, there's a lot of factors that have allowed for this. Um, I'm not going to say that Clemson's due for a fall. I'm just saying that there are a lot of factors that help them get here besides the internal ones, and if those external factors start shifting the other way. That's when things could could turn heavily for for Clemson uh, in, in the negative sense. Yeah, uh, that's like the one difference is that like if they can't follow like who knows when Dabo leaves, but if they can't follow him up with a another great hire, which is not exactly even like a a thing that like every you know for lack of a better term blue blood college football program. Uh, is immune from like Alabama has had down periods, Texas has had down periods, etc. But those like programs, just because of who they are, still attract like a, a certain amount of people to watch them, no matter what. Um, Michigan, like they didn't have a good coach for a while, and even you know Lloyd Carr was a good coach, but he wasn't a great coach. Um, you and Texas, yeah, um, like those are the type of programs that when you match two of them up in the national championship, you'll get. Bonkers ratings and Clemson isn't quite there yet. That also, those? I, I wonder, I wonder how that how that uh, works because that was really only the rating for the ESPN cast, right? Like that didn't add up. Yeah, I, I didn't watch a second I, of, the, of the regular broadcast. I just watched the coaches thing the whole time. I had the regular broadcast on TV, and then I had, was like listening to the coaches on my computer. Um, because I wanted to hear what Dino had to say, which was mostly good stuff. I, I really enjoyed Dino. He was great. And, like, obviously we're biased, but, like, he was so much fun, and pretty much the rest of the internet agreed. Yeah. I, the internet loves Babers, and that's, that's, that's a great thing, and especially a great counter to the internet hating our old coach. Yes. <laughs> like the- and being totally ambivalent about Doug Marone. Yeah. Um, it's like, oh, that guy. ESPN loved Doug Marone, though. ESPN did love Doug Marone, and, uh, Hopefully, I also have to say, I think Dr. Hurd's going to do a good job with the Jaguars. I think he is. I think he's going to do a very good job with the Jaguars. Because that, yeah, that division is super winnable. Yeah, and like, hopefully they give him enough time because, like, I hope he doesn't have, I don't hope, Bort, like, Bortles' success isn't, like, pinned to Doug Marone. Like, I hope if Bortles doesn't work out, he gets his own quarterback shot. Um, but, like, if Bortles, like, finds himself or Marone gets to get another quarterback, like, I think he will work out because I, I mean, people, people doubt, like obviously the St. Dart thing was kind of silly, but he did go nine and seven with the bills. <laughs> like what with, with uh Kyle Orton playing quarterback, you know, that's pretty Ryan good. The sign there is a free agent, right? Oh, I really hope so. It's we need to have, and Tom Coughlin overseeing. Well, that's the other thing. Tom Coughlin's there. Doug Marone's going to get the time. He like, he's going to get a fair shake. I think, because we know Coughlin and Marone are, are tight. Like the Syracuse mafia is real in Jacksonville right now. As Kevin wrote about the other day, the whole city of Jacksonville is all about all about Syracuse stuff. <laughs> what a city! What a city to have be Syracuse South, Jacksonville, Florida. Duval. There, oh uh, God! Yeah, Jacksonville's fun. Anyway, I think that's a great place to end here. Uh, Dan, any uh, any parting thoughts for everybody? Uh, everything everything in the world truly does end in Jacksonville. So yes. <laughs> Um, like the, and this podcast will as well, uh, in, in keeping with the cycles of the universe. Fair enough, fair enough. Um, Dan, thank you as always for joining. It's been a pleasure. Always is. And that was Dan. I'm John. Thanks for tuning in to Troy Noons and Absolute Podcast. 
Be sure to rate, review, subscribe on iTunes, on Blog Talk, and uh, go Orange. Go Orange. At Jared, we know devotion isn't a once-a-year occasion. And once the flowers have wilted and the chocolates have disappeared, you'll still want them to know how much you care. Dare to give a gift that lasts this Valentine's Day with our incredible selection of jewelry. From delicate rose gold to bold black diamonds, Jared has hundreds of pieces under $299 and exclusive collections you won't find anywhere else. Shop online or find a store near you at jared.com and dare to be devoted.